Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. In this episode, my co-host, Dr. Tal Raviv, and I chat with Alain Barsam, the director and founding partner of OCL Vision, a bespoke private ophthalmic surgery practice in London, England. In this episode, he tells us about the logistics of running a private practice within the UK's National Health Service, how he makes OCL Vision stand out among local competitors, and some of his favorite IOLs available in Europe and the United Kingdom, coming up on Off the Grid. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the, Off the Grid. I'm your host, Blake Williamson, here with my amazing co-host, Dr. Tal Raviv in New York City. Tal, how you doing, man? All is good in New York. Thanks. Chet's won. That was a big victory. Yes, yes, yeah. Over uh, the uh, the Bengals and my Joe Burrow from LSU. I couldn't believe that, man. Is there some excitement up in uh, the Jets Nation right now? Maybe a little bit, but very guarded, very guarded. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, they were making references to Testaverde. I was like, last time those. I don't know. Anyway, we're dating this podcast now, but and, and my fandom. So let's move on to yeah. So time. so uh, you had a great idea for today's uh, session and today's podcast, and and uh, I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people to kind of give us, especially here in the states, give us sort of a unique perspective of what it's like to start a practice similar to you and you and mine uh, uh, overseas. So why don't you introduce our guest, and we'll go from there. Well, thanks, Blake. And it's uh, it's great to have uh, Alon Barsum here. Uh, Alon is the director and founding partner of OCL Vision, which is a bespoke private ophthalmic surgery practice in London. He's a cataract cornea refractive surgeon who is frequently seen, you know, in publications and presentations internationally, et cetera. He and I met years ago at an international meeting somewhere and have hung out over the years uh, he did his fellowship in the United States after training in residency in UK, went back and started something that is very few people do. He started a successful solo practice in the UK and then built it into what is now a, a, just a multi-site practice called OCL Vision. So I am very, very honored, happy to have Alone here. Alone, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for coming. The reason, you know, one of the things that, well, that will break this whole conversation is I had a patient, I don't know, five months ago that brought her mother in who was here from Ireland and she needed to get surgery. I said, why aren't you, why aren't you having it done in Ireland? And she said, it was a year and a half wait. And I thought that can't be true. And it is true. So maybe be, well, I want to start off by like what the landscape is like there in the UK, but tell me why is there a year and a half delay in cataract surgery? We know, you know, give us the background a little bit. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is that Ireland is a little, is a bit separate from the rest of the UK. Um, obviously it depends on which part of Ireland that they're from. Um, or or what fact, is it in the UK? I mean, I'm sure, you know, uh, what is it where you guys are? Well, I mean, it varies depending on the region, but it's it's certainly a lot longer than it ever was before. Um, you know, in, in some regions, it's it can be as low as two to three months, but in some regions, it's, you know, nine months or more. We we actually tried as a practice to try and get some, um, you know, real da- real data on this by contacting the National Health Service trusts in various regions. 
Um, and it's quite difficult to get a real handle on exactly how long the wait is because it really depends on how they categorize it. Like, do they categorize it from when a patient first gets referred? Do they categorize it from when the patient gets seen and then, you know, gets listed for surgery until they actually have the operation? And um, it's, you know, it's difficult to really know for sure, but there's no doubt that the waiting lists have gone, um, have become much longer than they were before. And they were quite long before, actually, in the UK compared to somewhere like the and US. why is it? I mean, if you're a surgeon working for the NHS, is there no incentive to do more surgery? That's the question. You know, it usually comes down to that. Are they are they blocked for time? Yeah, I mean, it's not just about incentive. It's also about resources. Um, and yes, I mean, you could argue that the whole organization is not incentivized in terms of like at least financially incentivized to be to be more efficient because it's not a it's not an economy like the kind of real world economy, if you like. Like there's a there's a kind of limited amount of money that the government will um, you know, we'll put forward for the services and then people make decisions on how that money should be spent, you know, is one is one particular answer. But also, to be honest, even if you assumed that everyone working in the NHS was as motivated as possible to be as efficient and as hardworking as humanly possible, um, you know, which is the case in some, which is certainly the case in some places, and then it's just limited by resources. So it's limited by the number of um, you know, nurses that you have there, the number of surgeons that you have there, the number of operating theatres that you have there. Um, but there's no doubt having, you know, worked in the National Health Service in the UK, having worked in a in in, in the US uh, private practice, and then obviously being involved now in 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 um, um, a merger with my with my now partners in a private practice organisation in the UK, that there are a variety of different, you know, of different models of care. And it does have an impact on things like waiting times, on things like, you know, the work ethic, how people work and how efficient they are. Um, and, it, and obviously in terms of like the resources that are available, that's a huge, that's a huge thing. It sounds like as a result, a whole crop of private practices have, have come up and we'd love you to speak about that anyway. In the UK? Yeah, I mean- yeah, it looks like there's a whole bunch of ways to do cataract surgery outside the NHS, different types of practice settings. And that's where you guys have sort of found the niche. Yeah, that's what I'm curious about too. Is it is it is it similar to where it is in the U.S. Where you know I'm just curious, like what 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 roughly percentage of, of ophthalmologists are working inside of a hospital setting versus sort of a, 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 a you know not necessarily a cash pay private practice, but can you still be in the NHS and have a separate sort of freestanding you know clinic, kind of like we have here in the states, or do you, must you be inside like a big hospital? Yeah, so it certainly used to be the case that. It was really either, you know, all kind of an NHS hospital, like a big hospital um, that you like, like, similar to how I guess the VC hospitals would be in the in the US, or there would be private practices which might be bespoke ophthalmic pri private practices, which are actually surprisingly rare in the UK, but more commonly are just private hospitals um, that do all of the specialties of which ophthalmology is often one. Um, but what's happened over the last few years and it had happened previously about maybe 10 years ago and it kind of went away was the independent sector which are for-profit organizations contracting out their care to the government so it has become a little bit more I guess confusing if you like you can't just categorize it as kind of national health service hospitals and you know private practice providers um, and in fact according to their own claims, and I don't know whether this has been substantiated or not. Last year, the number one provider of cataract surgery in the UK was actually a private provider called Spa Medica, which is basically a private organization which contracts out NHS care. 
Um, it was recently bought by Nordic Capital in a, in a, in a massive private equity deal. Um, you know, and they are able to do cataract surgery on NHS patients for profit and are trying to do it with as much volume and efficiency as possible, if you like. Um, it obviously creates a lot of problems because they tend to only operate on the most straightforward cases. They tend to not do any training or teaching. And so it leaves the National Health Service with a even greater amount of complex, difficult cases to do. Um, and that makes it then less able to teach and train. Because if you only have, you know, dense rocks, only eye patients, highly mobile pseudo exfoliation, you can't really teach anyone to start operating, doing cataract surgery, if, if that's kind of what you're left with, if you like. Um, and in fact, I published a paper back in about 2002 or 2003, which was the last time that the independent sector was really big in the UK, looking at how it affected the case mix. Because when it came into one region, we looked at the case mix within the National Health Service before and then after, and we found it made things significantly more complex. Um, and I think that's the way it's going. So um, that, that creates problems. But um you know, from our from what we do in our private practice, we don't do any NHS care within the private practice. All of us, as it happens, still do NHS work separately. So we kind of give a certain amount of time to the NHS um, outside of the commitment we have to our private practice. Um, but what we do in our private practice is really, I guess you would call it more kind of premium or high end. It doesn't really address the, um, you know, the, it's not we're not really looking to do, you know, half of all cataracts in the UK, if we were to, let's say, scale nationally, it's really patients that want to have premium lenses, that want to have a specialist looking after you, that want that, that want them, that want to be able to choose the consultant who's looking after them, that want to avoid waiting lists, uh, that want to have some flexibility over when they have their surgery. Um, the kind of stuff I think that you'd be very familiar with in the US, you know, it's not, it's not that different. Um, the, the reimbursement structure and doing it within the, within a, a environment where the National Health Service is still doing the majority of cataract cases, makes it a little bit different in terms of the volume. Um, but in terms of the kind of pay, how the patients are motivated to seek care, how they access us, and then the, type, the, the kind of care that we try and provide for them, I don't think that you'd find it that dissimilar. You know, it looks like since there's waiting lists and NHS has trouble keeping up with the volume, there's different, different solutions have cropped up. And it seems like there's private hospitals, as you mentioned, there's private corporations that give you cataract surgery. And then there's, you know, you're doing, you're doing something which is the high touch model, as you mentioned. Uh, what led you to choose this? And, you know, what's interesting about the high touch model is, you know, people are coming there and taking out their credit card, I assume, mostly, or, and, or, you know, or, or is there a secondary insurance market? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, there is, there is a significant insured market. So I think it's estimated that about 10% of the UK has private medical insurance. So because people are aware, well, either because people are aware that there may be limitations with NHS care in terms of waiting times, in terms of choice of surgeon and consultant, choice of location, um, or even the technology that they can have available. Like for example, if you wanted a multifocal lens implant, there is no co-payment allowed in the National Health Service. You can't go to the National Health Service and say, look, I don't mind which the, who the doctor is. I don't mind waiting six months. I just wanna make sure I have this implant. You can't add on and pay additional for an implant within the NHS. It's like either totally free or you go somewhere else. Um, so, you know, people will people will look um, elsewhere for, for that reason. Um, and, you know, the, in terms of the high end or, or, or high touch, it's, 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 it just kind of, I guess it just kind of came about. Like it's, 
it's if you're doing private practice in the UK, um, then that's kind of what it is by default. Otherwise, you're not really providing patients with an alternative to what happens in the NHS. So um, in my opinion, the more you, um, you know, there are many excellent things about the NHS. The NHS is very good at kind of maintaining a, a, a safe minimum standard. It's very good at what we call um, clinical governance, which is things like auditing of results and looking and ensuring that everything is done safely. Um, it tries to standardize certain things, which can be helpful. Um, you know, and, and so there are things that are of benefit in terms of what we've learned within our, our NHS, um, you know, careers. But I think that what we really try and do in our practice is almost like a discriminator from the NHS. And even on our website, we have things that show the difference between, you know, NHS cataract care and cataract care or something like that. with us. Um, some of which we've mentioned, you know, choice of lens, choice of surgeon, wait time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the seniority of the surgeon is a big deal as well, actually, because, you know, in the US, whether you're working in the, uh, the VC hospitals or whether you're working in private practice or whether you're working in a university hospital, it's normally an attending, i.e. someone that is fully qualified that is delivering care. The residents do, do, quite, do, do relatively few cases. You know, you might do two, 300 cataract cases over three years. But, you know, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of cases happening uh, all the time. In the UK, residency training is seven or eight years. Um, and, ju and just the statistics of that mean that statistically in, in many institutions, not all of them, but in many institutions, it's statistically unlikely that a consultant will do your operation, especially if it's a place that's, that's there for training. So it's another factor, you know, so with us, obviously, it's a consultant that does the surgery. That's important to some patients. They want to be able to choose who the surgeon is. And then, and then the technology is, you guys know, the technology has just become massive. And in fact, one of our, you know, one of the reasons that I personally wanted to move out of solo practice um, and, you know, form a partnership with, with, with other guys at a similar ethos to myself um, is that I just felt that the technological requirements and options in all elements of ophthalmic care, by the way, not just cataract surgery, but everything were only going to become greater. There was only going to be more expensive lasers, more that you could offer, more technology required, more resources needed, um, and doing that in in numbers in a meaningful way really you know it's a it's it's a it's a huge discriminator. You know, you just have to walk into the practice, and it would be obvious to patients uh, what the difference is. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking you know for us here in the states, like you know we can kind of have our cake and eat it too in terms of like we can we can charge Medicare and Medicaid, but for those patients if they want to pay extra, then we can have a boutique practice within our practice. We don't have to go out there and say you know what. We're opting out of Medicare and all that. I know some practices do, but you guys, it's kind of all or none. You can still have some time at the NHS, like you mentioned, but within your private practice, it sounds like it's kind of all or none. I'm just wondering, you know, what you're doing sounds so much more appealing to me because that's kind of what we're familiar with over here. What what percentage of, of residents that are gra uh, graduating uh, in the UK, what percentage of them end up doing something similar to what you're doing versus sort of just going to work for the NHS? Is it is it is it getting bigger and, and how is that changing? So almost everyone will start off working in the NHS when they finish their training. Um, and that's, I think, because the NHS is so involved in training because it's just it's just what everyone does. And if you don't do it, I think people will look at it and go, you know, why did you not commit any time to the NHS? It's really like it's really like a part of the, the soul of the British people, if you like. Um, so it would be, I think, frowned upon for someone to kind of come out of training and not commit any time whatsoever to the National Health Service. But obviously, there's huge varieties of what people are willing and prepared and committed to, you know, to do. Some people only work in the National Health Service, never do uh, any private practice. Um, some people will just spend 
you know, a couple of years or a few years in, in the in the National Health Service, and then go into full private practice. What most people do is they'll work part of the time in one and part of the time in the other and find a balance that they, that they as individuals are comfortable with. And some of that is determined by the geography that you're in. Um, you know, like London, for example, there tends to be, um, you know, more, there's more volume of private practice, if you like, probably more concentration of people that have private medical insurance um, and the cost of living is higher. So the kind of the, the income that you get from the National Health Service is, is pretty standard. I mean, there are like, there are excellence awards. So if you do kind of above and beyond, then you get paid a little bit more, but it doesn't vary hugely whether you're in central London or whether you're in, you know, some outer region of the uh, of the UK where, you know, it, the, the cost of living is much lower, you know, in terms of house prices, schooling, all the other things. So sometimes sometimes it's people's own personal motivating factor for what they need or want to earn uh, that influences the decision. And I think the the average ophthalmologist in the UK probably does the majority of their time in the NHS and might then do one or two sessions, which would be like one, you know, uh, clinic or one operating list or something like that, maybe every other week in an operating list and maybe one clinic a week. So they're, they're, they're really spending a minority of their time working in the private sector. Um, and I think, you know, there are, there are a huge variety of reasons for that. I mean, I think that the, to be honest, the, the private practice landscape in the UK, I would say, with all respect, and there's some obviously excellent people out there in excellent institutions, but on the whole, it is relatively immature compared to the US. You know, you guys have had decades to build effective businesses and organizations with large groups of people that support the work that you do, not just doctors, you know, administrators, managers, people in accounting, finance. And I think that if you look at like, for example, like the private equity, you know, appetite for um, having a piece of that in the US, if you like, I think it's testament to it. Like they recognize that these are successful, profitable, stable businesses, you know, where there's only more potential for doing more in the future. Um, and in the UK, I think because of the National Health Service, it's kind of, you you only have to be better than the National Health Service in order to justify someone coming to you. You don't have to be, you know, providing the best level of care for the country, for Europe, for the world, for example, um, at the moment. But, you know, it, will be, it is becoming more competitive and it is progressing rapidly. And I think the problems that the NHS is having with its waiting list, with what's happened in the wake of COVID, have created a lot of opportunity in the private sector. You know, it's we're, all of us are working much harder now. We're much busier than we ever were before. Well, I'd like to focus in a little bit about your practice. You know, it's it's a. I've seen you on social media and you're active, uh, and I know that since people have to use their own money in many cases to to have this surgery, you have to compete for that. You have beautiful offices. Tell me a little bit about what is it that you guys are doing to stand out. I know you have some really cool like post op swag bags. You also don't have uh, the insurance company telling you what you can and can't do like we do here. And is it true that you guys do you do bilateral surgery? Do you do in office surgery? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that we we aren't regulated by the insurance companies like you might say that you are in the US, but the insurance companies do impose um, limits on pricing. Um, and there are some limits on how we do things. For example, um, you know, there's often package pricing where you kind of, especially as a new provider, you have to kind of accept their fees in order to be recognized. And you can choose not to be recognized or as you, you would say, like opting out as you might opt out of Medicare or Medicaid. So we could opt out of some of the kind of lower paying, higher volume insurers. Um, but we've chosen not to do that. Um, 
you know, we're not, uh, that's just not, that's not really our model. We want, we actually want to make, although we are premium and high touch and high end, we believe that it can be made available to most people. Um, and we, we're kind of passionate about the idea that the kind of private eye care that we provide is the best kind of private eye care available. And we would like to make that available to as many people as possible. Clearly, there will be some people where affordability is a barrier. But actually, even for them, we've looked at ways to try and make it manageable. You know, we look at like, you know, financing schemes over two or three years. We've tried to keep our, our kind of low end um, procedure, like, for example, a cataract operation with a standard monofocal lens and no femtosecond. You know, we've tried to keep that as competitive as possible because we don't want to. It's not because we need to compete with our competitors because we're, we're we're almost too busy at the moment but it's more that we don't want to make it we don't want to charge something that we think is unfair to that patient because we know that whatever we're charging most people probably could find a way to to you know to, to to essentially pay for that if they were motivated to um you know maybe they'd have to finance it over two years and cut back on other things like holidays or trips abroad but you know people do prioritize health um so we want it to be accessible to as many people as possible um and in terms of like how we get the message out to patients, you know, like you with you guys, the, the majority is word of mouth. So all of the other stuff that you're aware of through social media, through branding, through, you know, all that kind of stuff, that's really just for the kind of 10 or 20% maximum of patients that might be shopping around that might be thinking, do I go here? Do I go there? Most of it, to be honest, is to reinforce what the patients already know, right? So someone said to them, you need to go to OCL vision and have cataract surgery because those guys are great, all right? Then when they're on social media looking up, you know, cataract surgery with, with multifocal lenses, when OCL vision pops up, it kind of reinforces that message. So I think that I think that for people that, many people have a kind of simplistic view on marketing as though just one thing puts the idea in a patient's head and that's how they make their decision. You know, like they happen to be reading something in a newspaper or they or they just happen to be browsing on Google or they happen to just be speaking to their friend. There's often multiple things that will influence the decision, especially amongst the most discerning of people. And it's the people that are most discerning who did the most research, who thought about it the most, who sourced information from the widest possible, um, you know, spheres of 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 influence are the ones that tend to generate the most word of mouth because people listen to those people. People that are like happy-go-lucky, easygoing, impulsive. People are like, yeah, what, what did you really care about who you went to? Do you really worry about it or care about it? But people that really like research it thoroughly, those are the ones that people tend to listen to. So yes, we want to be present in all areas of where people want, might be looking, but it, word of mouth is a huge driver. You know, you do a good job for someone, they see really well, they don't need glasses, they're telling their friends about you. And then the other stuff is all extra, to be honest. Yeah, when I was there, I went and visited. I, I didn't know you well enough yet, but now that I know you, I'm going to invite myself to your practice. But I went and hung out with uh, Julian at Moorfields, and I went to Dan's practice and kind of saw, you know, his clinic and how it was set up. And gosh, it just couldn't be any more different. Uh, you know, w- with the private practice setting, you guys, you, you can you can you can pick the couch you want, you can pick the color paint you want, you can pick. You know, do you have flowers or do you have sculptures at the front desk? I mean, talk about how fulfilling it is kind of choosing the route that you did. And maybe, you know, maybe that's a sign of things to come in the UK. Hopefully it can start to become more like that everywhere because it just sounds such such a better way to live. Yeah, we're really we're really lucky. I mean, the journey has been a lot of hard work and it's been a lot of heartache. And we were kind of we done a lot of hard work before even merging as OCR vision with our own practices to have that kind of 
you know volume of patients um but we there's really no looking back for us we like we it's very exciting we're kind of constantly thinking about the new thing the next thing um and our plan is to kind of you know continue to grow but uh you'd be very welcome to, to, to visit and join us whenever whenever you're in town i'll uh I'm going to visit with Blake where also because uh, that sounds great. And I know Blake has done a lot of visiting other practices, which is so critical for anyone. Just learn so much more by going somewhere and just sharing what they're doing. Uh, as we wrap up a little bit, let's just uh, focus a little on technology. We know Europe and the UK are so much ahead of the US as far as approvals. Tell us a little bit about what you're using in your toolbox these days. Uh, I know you've had the IC8, but what about Sulcus IOLs? I find I always see patients that could use a sulcus multifocal or something. I know they're available. Are you guys using that kind of stuff? What do you guys, what's your favorite multifocal these days? What are you doing over there? Yeah. So I like, I, 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 I like the rate, I like the rain of trifocal. So my favorite multifocal is a trifocal and there are a few trifocals now and it's, you know, there's subtle differences between one and the other. Um, but the Rainer trifocal is my, is my preferred trifocal. Rainer also makes sulcus based lenses. So they make the sulcaflex, which can be also, trifocal um, but I don't use a huge amount of sulcus lenses to be honest I mean I tend to use them for refractive surprise if I think that LASIK isn't a good idea you know if they've got dry eye or something of that nature you know where it's a high hyperop high hyperopic refractive surprise then I might then I might use that but there's a lot of exciting kind of premium monofocals or you could call them increased range of focus lenses like the Ray1 EMV lens which which induces a bit of controlled positive spherical aberration and it's quite nice transitioning from a, a kind of standard monofocal practice with some toric lenses and some trifocals to essentially a kind of almost 100% premium lens practice because there isn't a huge reason not to give someone a little bit more rather than just a standard monofocal they can have a bit a bit more range of focus without without losing anything in quality of vision so i think that's pretty exciting and i think i think you know in 5 years it, that everyone will be having lenses that give them some more depth of focus than a standard lens unless you know with rare exception and what about, I have to ask about MIGS because, you know, MIGS, from what I understand, hasn't really taken off quite as much in the UK, uh, you know, as it has here in the US because of reimbursement and, you know, things like that. Are, are y'all, is anyone charging, like in a practice like yours, is anyone charging, you know, cash to do like an eye stent or uh, a MIGS yeah. procedure for those patients with glaucoma? Is that is that a model that's happening? Yeah, I think it is happening. And I think, I, I imagine that the insurance companies are asking patients to top up. So I think the uptake is probably because the top up for MIGS is probably not palatable to, to, to patients. I also know that the issue with glaucoma is that because it's considered a chronic um, chronic disease, that often insurance companies will kind of exclude patients when they renew their policy from one year to the next. So I think that in glaucoma, you know, it is a, it is a bit more problematic. And we have a glaucoma specialist who does all that kind of stuff at OCL Vision. It's not something that I personally do. Well, um, thanks so much for uh, taking time to be with to explain your practice and tell us what's going on over there at the UK. Can't wait to uh, see you all in person at the next uh, maybe ACOS meeting or somewhere else. Uh, and uh, I look forward to visiting. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Dr. Barsam, for joining us on this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time.